Thank you so much, Jess, and uh, thank you for Belinda. Thank you to Cheryl for leading us and the team so well this morning. Uh, yeah, it is Reconciliation Week, and as a church, we have taken that on board this Sunday and talking about these things and just recognising that. This morning is a heavy sermon, uh, and I've, I am aware that uh, for some people, particularly towards the end of the message today, there may be some stories and thoughts given which may be difficult and perhaps even triggering for you. Um, and I just want to acknowledge that and say that, that is, that's something that may happen as we talk about some of our history, particularly as Christians and churches and even in Australia. Some of the things that have been done in the name of Jesus are things that we should rightly be very sorry for. Uh, and maybe you say to yourself, well, I wasn't there, I wasn't part of that. And that would be valid to say, well, you weren't there and you weren't part of that. But as Christians, we take responsibility, actually, for what was done in the name of Jesus. And we look back at what was done uh, through churches and missions, and a lot of the things that were done were horrific. And particularly, I think about what wasn't said uh, when it needed to be said. As a church, we should be standing up for those that can't stand up for themselves, and we haven't done that. And I think back to... The apology that, uh, and not to delve into politics, there's <laughs> enough trouble dealing with religion, but delving back into politics a little bit when our Prime Minister, uh, Kevin Rudd, stood up and gave the apology to the nation for the stolen generation, and there was a lot of confusion and discussion around that. It reminded me of the verse in Isaiah, where the prophet Isaiah stood up in front of God and said, Lord, I'm a sinful man amongst sinful people. It wasn't actually his sin he was taking responsibility for. As a leader, he was taking responsibility for the sin of the people that he was a part of. And as a church, in order to move forward, we need to acknowledge what went on in the past, and we're seeking to do that. As best as we can, because uh, you look at me with these lights shining on me, these are not things that have affected me personally. Uh, but if I don't say something, then, then who will say something? So we should say something. Uh, we should also be uh, posture ourselves to listen as well and to hear the stories. And I've, I've, I don't know about you, but I was just watching that video of the Indigenous people singing that song. I mean, I could barely sing it. It just makes me cry to see them uh, do that and acknowledge that. They are our history. They are the history of this country. And uh, so good to see God at work uh, in them and for them to bless us, to join us uh, through the power of electronic media. How wonderful is that? I'm going to be talking this morning about a, a lawyer, a religious lawyer. So we've got problems already, right? He's religious and he's a lawyer. Uh, and he's the sort of person actually that was a good person. He wanted to be good. We're going to be delving with the story of the Good Samaritan this morning. But actually, I'm just as interested in the person that came to Jesus to ask the question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And he, he's a lawyer, so he's used to wriggling himself out of situations and out of responsibility and using words to uh, absolve himself of the things that, that he doesn't want to do, actually. So that question, who is my neighbour, is the question we're asking today. This religious lawyer is going to come to Jesus and where is he? What is he thinking? What's going on in his mind and heart? It's pretty obvious. There's two sides to him. When he walks down the street, he wants people to think well of him. And he wants to do the right thing, actually. He's studied the scriptures. He knows the Old Testament back, back and forward. He knows what the good things are to do. And he wants to be spoken well of. He's the sort of person, in fact, you would say, well, that is a good person. 
But there's another side to him, and that's the side that comes to Jesus and wants to trip Jesus up and wants to find him out. So he comes to him and asks him a question, which we're going to look at in a moment. And as Jesus does so very often, he tells a story. And so perhaps one of the themes this morning is the story of the Good Samaritan. And isn't this a story that's permeated throughout society? It's only told here. uh, We're going to look at it in Luke 10 in a moment. It's only told here in Luke. In none of the other Gospels does the story come. Yet it's a story that has uh, gone everywhere. I don't know if you remember the last episode of Seinfeld. Does anyone remember the last episode of Seinfeld? There are a bunch of very um, selfish people from New York and they fail the Good Samaritan test when they're watching this overweight person struggling to get out of his car and someone comes along and is, is, robs him and they do nothing about it. And they're not good Samaritans. This, this term, good Samaritan, is everywhere. Why? It's a very powerful story. In fact, so much so that as I was Googling it this week, I came across uh, this story that uh, 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 happened in Queensland this week. A good Samaritan. What was happening? This is a true story. You can look it up on your phones while you're bored of me preaching this morning. Uh, and on, on this story happened last week. And what happened was there was this guy and he was driving a car. I think it was a Mazda or something. And he's driving along uh, in Queensland. And he sees a Jaguar SUV that's gone down the side of the cliff. And he's like, oh, man, I've got to stop. And he's in such a, such a hurry. He jumps out of his car. His motor's still running. He, he belts down the side of the cliff and he rescues this guy out of his Jaguar. He's crashed and he pulls him out of the door. And the guy there, the young man is struggling, looking for his mobile phone. And then the, our, our good Samaritan then turns his attention to the rest of the car to see if there's anyone else there that he needs to rescue and find. And as he's doing that, he hears, our, he hears his own car revving off down the road. The young man who he's just rescued has bolted up the cliff, stolen his car, which, by the way, they still haven't recovered. Uh, And that's what happened. And that's what happens when you're a good Samaritan, right? You get taken advantage of. And that's like the point of the story. It's like, who is my neighbour? Should I help that person? And thank you, Google, for that story, which fit my sermon so perfectly this morning. (laughs) If you've got your Bibles, we're going to look at this story in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start at verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law, so he's a lawyer, stood up and to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Here's the cross Belinda was talking about. All your soul, all your strength and all your mind. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. 
Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he, when he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm there. Now which of these three would you say was the neighbour to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, Now you now go and do the same. You know, Jesus is actually quite respectful to the lawyer. He knows the lawyer's heart and intent, but he's actually willing to have this discussion with him. And often what a rabbi would do is if someone came to them and asked them a question, they would answer with a question. This is one of the things that Jesus does. It can be quite frustrating. But what they're doing is they're bantering to try and get to the heart of the matter. And to use a phrase which perhaps is a bit unfortunate, but he gives this man enough rope to hang himself. He gives him enough that he will use his own values, what he actually thinks, and then Jesus will turn that around and use that against him. Well, what do you say is the most important thing? I mean, this... uh, uh, religious scribe comes to him and commentators don't really know what he meant by eternal life, whether he meant life that starts now, life that is a good life, life that goes on forever. What was their concept of eternal life? It's not entirely clear of someone back then. But nonetheless, he's asking the question, you know, what do I do to be accepted by God? What do I do to, to be doing the right thing, to appear to be doing the right thing? And he gives a great answer. Love the Lord your God. Love others. It's a wonderful answer. And Jesus says, yeah, look, you have answered right. Imagine Jesus saying, 10 out of 10, mate, you've answered the quiz. But now I'm going to turn that around. I'm going to flip that around. You you were drawn into my trap because now I'm going to ask you the question. And I'm going to provoke it to you. And the man, lawyer, how can I wriggle out of this? Because the truth is, he didn't want to love his neighbour. He didn't want to be this person that would go and help the unfortunate. So Jesus, help me to define who my neighbour is. And there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes here. You see, for a for a priest, they, would, they wanted to skip to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And they wanted to use this verse. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against, what does it say there? A fellow Israelite. But love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, they wanted to define their neighbour as just being their fellow Israelites. Not the foreigner. Not the person that was outside of their community. In fact, the Pharisees wanted to define it even more to their particular sect of their religion to say, well, these people here over here, you know, they're the great unwashed. They're the ones that don't know stuff and they're not part of our group. So I don't need to love them. In fact, loving them is a waste is actually what they would say. Showing mercy to these people over here is, is a waste because they won't get it, they won't understand it. And this is what he's trying to do here to define who his neighbor is. His neighbor is someone like me. Someone that's part of God's kingdom. But not only part of God's kingdom, but they think like me. They dress like me. They're part of my community. I want to show love to them. Of course, I want to skip forward to another verse in Leviticus, which is 33, 34. 
Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You see, the writer here wants, wants us to understand something. No matter how far God has brought you at once before you weren't in this place. Now, this can be really tricky for those of us who are brought up in the church and have felt like, well, we've always been Christians and we've always been, and we've always been pretty good people. It can be really hard for us to understand that, in fact, we are sinners in need of God's grace as much as anyone else. And it can be very easy for us to sit here, if we're honest, and be smug about where we are, about how good a people we are. And it can be easy for us to forget that by the grace of God, we wouldn't be like this. Imagine if I'd been born into a different family in a different nation, in a different place. How fortunate I am, how grateful I need to be for my heritage, for where I've come from, what I've been given. Thank you, God. It could have been so easy. Think about what it would be like to be born in a foreign place and not hear the name of Jesus and not have that opportunity. Well, you are, we are so blessed. You are so blessed, every single one of you to be where you are, to be in the position you are. And it's that sense of gratefulness to God's grace for us that needs to spur us on. The writer writes in in the book of Micah, and this is the the attitude and the heart we are to have. No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. The Samaritans and the Samaritan in this story are, you know, they're, they're the bad people. They're the people that were despised. They were the second cousins of the Israelite people. Remember the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, and she asked Jesus, she said, Jesus, uh, you don't worship where we worship, and, and what's going on with that? Uh, the Samaritans thought they worshipped at the right place. They worshipped a different place to the people of Israel. And so there was a different sense of religion, a different sense of whatever. But they'd all actually come from the same tribes. You trace their history back and they actually come from the same place. But they didn't want to admit that. and They didn't want to say that. You know what it's like when you've got someone that's a little bit like you, but they're just a little bit different? You know, sometimes as Christians, we can be the most unkind to those believers that are a little bit different to us. And this is what's happening here. They're more than unkind. In fact, we know how badly they thought of the Samaritans and what they thought of them because how they described Jesus in this verse, uh, in John 8, 848, the people retorted, you Samaritan devil. They're talking to Jesus. It's, it's the biggest insult they can give is to call him a Samaritan devil. Didn't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon? And so Jesus uses the person in this story as a Samaritan to make the point. It's the person that is most unexpected, that you don't expect to be the one who shows mercy, who shows mercy. The priest, the Bible says that he was coming down from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Perhaps that's significant because as a priest, if you were going up to Jerusalem, you'd be going up to the temple where you needed to be clean. You couldn't touch someone that was really sick or, or potentially dead if you were going up to the temple to worship. But, you're, but he's not. 
He's actually coming down from the temple. He's probably been to the temple where they've said, love everyone, and he's coming down from the temple, going home, and he could quite easily have helped that guy, even within the confines of his own law. Jesus is not giving the priest or the Levite anything. He's not giving them any excuse. There was no reason they couldn't have helped this guy, but they choose not to. The Samaritan shows incredible grace. Innkeepers were known to be like, scallywags and so he he gives him the money initially and he says i'm going to come back later on because he wanted to make sure that the innkeeper actually did it it's just this extra level of care i'll I'll come back and i'll give you more money once he's well he didn't want the innkeeper to chuck him out once his back was turned and so there's this extra level of care that he gives this extra level of mercy jesus just I mean, Jesus is such a master. You can be as smart a religious lawyer as you like, but coming up against Jesus, man, he, he knew what was going on here and he knew what to say and he just nails the guy. And this is, why, this is why we see this sense of surprise in the Gospels when they come up against Jesus with these questions and they push him. And every time he's like, yeah, but what about this and what about that? He's like an equal offender, isn't he? doesn't matter who you are, who you are, you're going to find a reason to be offended by Jesus because he's going to nail you on what you need to be nailed on. And this is what this religious leader, lawyer, needed to be nailed on. He sensed that he wouldn't care for those that needed to be cared for. So now the sermon takes a bit of a flip. I've been reading this book it's a book called One Blood, and it's by a guy called John Harris. And it, it's been really difficult reading. It's basically the story of the church in Australia. And it's the church of what we did, what we didn't do. There's some really good stories in here. There's also some really difficult stories. And things that, you know, if we're going to move forward, if we're going to go forward and be reconciled, at some point we actually need to understand our past. It doesn't mean we have to dwell in and keep staying there, but we do have to understand it. And I've, to be honest, as I'm reading some of this, it's a really good book. Uh, it, it shocks me. And some things are shocking. But let me read it, just a couple of stories. The church's efforts in Tasmania were so minimal and the tragedy there was so great that it is tempting to disregard it. To ignore Tasmania, however, as if what happened did not happen, would be a grave injustice. When Australia's second penal settlement was established in Van Diemen's land at Hobart Hobart Town in 1803, there were about 4,000 Aborigines living on the island and its surrounds. 27 years later, when they were taken away into exile, over 90% of them had been killed by the white settlers. The last Tasmanians of full Aboriginal descent died well before the century ended. James Bonwick's words about the Tasmanian Aboriginals in 1870 haunt us today. We cover our faces while the deep and solemn voice of our common father echoes through the soul, where is thy brother? What What the Christian churches were doing while all of this was going on is a question which is shameful to have to ask. The answer is simple, almost nothing. Church of England, Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist churches have all been established quite early in Hobart. Yet in 1929, Henry Widdinson was led to write, I have never heard, nor do I believe, that any teacher of the gospel ever went half a dozen miles from Hobart Town to inquire of their, their condition. 
this is a really bad story, and I almost apologise for, for saying it. But I feel we need to. The general reaction of the Aboriginals to the settlers was initially peaceful, despite the fact that explorers such as the French had already shot and killed some of them. Very few, however, were in the vicinity of Ritson Cove on the Derwent River when the British landed there in 1803. The Tasmanian Aboriginal people were hunted in the island forest and plains in the warmer months, wintering on the coast from about May to August. So they moved around. In 1804, a large party of them, moving from their inland hunting grounds toward the mouth of the Derwent River, passed close to Ridson Cove. Using their traditional hunting strategy, they advanced in a semicircle, driving a herd of kangaroos before them. Although the presence of women and children disproved any hostile in intent, a party of the 102nd Regiment of the British Army shot 50 men, women and children, some with cannon fire. The commander of the Risdon, Lieutenant John Bowen, later reported that he did not think the Aboriginals were of any use to the British. Moore's official report claimed the Aboriginals were the aggressors and that only two or three were shot dead, but gross official understatements of the Aboriginal deaths was almost inevitable. Witnesses stated that the Aboriginals were not aggressive, but that many were killed and children were taken. Governor George Arthur's report estimated that 50 were killed, but he hoped the estimate might have been overrated. I mean, the, the telling thing for me there is the church is doing nothing. <laughs> I mean, we, you probably have heard some of these stories yourself. But the church was doing nothing. Part of the church's role is to stand up and to stand up for what is right. Part of the church's role is to understand that the divine spark is inside every person. We're all made in the image of Christ. And, you know, we oscillate whether we're in power and in authority at different centuries and different times. But every single soul is made in the image of God. And this is the most important point. And this is the point that, that we make as our excuse. Who is my neighbour? If you take away someone's um, humanity, if you say they're less than human, if you say they don't have a soul, then what that means is you can do whatever you want. And this is what they were doing. Wesleyan missionary Samuel Lee described Aboriginal people as barbarians to whom had been assigned the lowest place in the scale of the intellect. Lutheran missionary William Schritt wrote, the Aboriginal people were the lowest in the scale of the human race. Less than human. The other problem was that the colonial... Um, people, and I've got the thing here, what they would do, uh, they would take the Aboriginal women for their slaves, their sex slaves, they would take their children, and so they would go into a tribe, they would do whatever they needed to do, and they would take them back. And there was one particular moment where there were some missionaries uh, trying to share the gospel to these people. And can you imagine, they saw all the white people as being Christians. And so they're coming to the Aboriginal people and they're saying, you are sinners, and you need to repent of your sin. And they're looking at these people coming in and taking their women and taking their children. And they literally said, but what about this sin? What about this sin that's happening to us? And of course, one of the big mistakes they made was to not go amongst them, to not live with them, to not understand them, to not sit with them. 
they gave a gospel from on high, which is incredibly ineffective. There was good news as well, and there were some that stood up. In the midst of a terrible story, in 1847 in New South Wales, the governor sent out some troops to kill some Aboriginal people who were using land that the colonists said, well, this is our land. How can you? There was such misunderstanding around that. They killed around 300 Aboriginal people. It was a slaughter. A very black stain on our nation's history. There's a missionary called Lancelot Freckled, and he, he stood up. In fact, he wrote to the London Times and he told the whole story about what had happened. And he sought to say, this is inhumane. This is injustice. These people need to be brought to account. The governor at the time replied by saying, you're just a missionary. You're getting funds from England and you need to get more funds. So that's why you're saying what you're saying. He questioned his motives. But nonetheless, he stood up and he said, this is not right. There is good news. And the good news is that We as Christians are here to spread the news and to tell the story that everyone can receive God's grace. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, what type of neighbour am I? Not who is my neighbour, but perhaps what type of neighbour am I? Who am I in all this? How do I respond? What do I say? The choice we have as believers is that we will choose to be kind, we will choose to be generous, we will choose to be giving. We will care for those that are different to us. We'll be kind to those who may not choose to be kind to us. We'll be open, we'll be vulnerable, we'll be giving and we'll be generous. Just as a little aside, just in case, you know, just in case there's someone here that maybe has been abused or been in an abusive situation and you're thinking, well, I need to just take that. You don't need to take that. You know, one of the interesting stories about Jesus when uh, they came at him, I told this story a couple of weeks ago, and they were coming to push him off the cliff. He walked among them and walked away. His time wasn't right. So he wasn't going to allow them to push him off the cliff until his time was right. As well as that, when he's on the cross, what does he say when he's under the cross? He, he says, into, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, Jesus all the time had his heart set on the mission of God. If you find yourself in a situation where there's been abuse, where there's been whatever, you, you need to get out of that situation. As a Christian, as a believer, part of forgiveness and part of reconciliation is not allowing yourself to be abused and to be taken advantage of. You you need to get out of that place. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is seeing the divine in every person around us, seeing the potential in every person around us, seeing that God has made us all in the image of himself that divine spark. Father, I just want to thank you, Lord, this morning so much that with all its faults and with all the problems that there have been in churches, Lord, there have been shining lights and people who have cared and loved. And so often, Lord, there are the stories that are not told. As I look out 
on this congregation, I think of all the people whose lives we come into contact with. Lord, we can be kind. We can be generous. We can see the best in people. Lord, we're sorry for what's been done in your name. And Lord, we're determined that people will hear and see the true gospel message, Lord, in us. Lord, that indeed we can be the one that binds up the wounds. We can be the one that helps out when there is injustice. We can be the ones that pay for someone when they need something paid for. Lord, that can be our role. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our service has come to an end. I just want to say next week we have a really great service. We have a dedication service of some really special young people in the life of our church. And it's going to be a big crowd in next week. There's going to be lots of visitors. I just encourage you to have a wonderful week and we'll see you in church next Sunday. God bless.